Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Marvel Comics illustrator Ron Friends, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of telling you all at home what this topic episode is, as well as introducing our special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them and our social medias. I hope he makes it. Go ahead. One day. First off, go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at... The Marvelists. Give us a follow-ski, a like-ski, a share-ski, a whatever-ski, a jet-ski. Yeah. Yeah. Seatbelt. I don't know. But you can also follow myself on Facebook at Peter Melnick Podcaster, on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And Eddie, yourself, what are you on? Instagram at Eddie9193. Also, on top of that, you can listen to this show on a wide variety of streaming platforms. If you're not already, how are you not doing it now, people? Jeez Louise Simonson. But go on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe, and five star if you're ever so inclined. And just remember, people. Much like the McDonald's ice cream machine, four stars and below just don't work. Just They just don't work. N- not available. It's out of service. Inclined or only reclined as long as you're comfortable. Exactly. <laughs> you can also listen to us on a wide variety of iOS and streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, among many, many others. But you heard me mention Stitcher just now, Eddie, right? Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, 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 oh, where am I? Who? What? But, Go to www.wolverinepodcast.com because I want to do a www for that. But wolverinepodcast.com and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And get one free month of Stitcher Premium. And you're able to listen to a crap ton of audio content, including Wolverine the Long Night and the sequel series from Marvel, the serialized audio format, Wolverine the Lost Trail. And it's written by comic book writers. It's got an all star cast of performers. Crazy, right? Yeah, well, yeah. it's good stuff. It's like doing things with my eyebrows for the audio platform. Yes, and, and like no you said, do it like Peter did. One free month. I didn't. How dare you? Don't you know what happens when you assume, right? You That's... make an assume out of mmm and ee. Okay, stole that from Jim Norton. I'm proud of that. But you can. <laughs> hey, Walt. He's talking about your wife Louise before there. Uh, but anyway, like I was saying. Go to WolverinePodcast.com and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And get a ton of audio content. And it's only $4.99 a month there after. After. Yes. So you can cancel it any time. You can cancel a day into it. You're like, you know what? I want to get all of the Weird Al Yankovic concert archives that are available on there because they are, Eddie. They are. Go for it. You can download them and then cancel and just like, you know what? Screw that. I'm not going to be there. But we want to put a good impression to John Q. Stitcher, the president of Stitcher. Yes. At least we think that... Stitchkowski. So, Could be. Stitcherowski. I, I don't know. I don't know where we're going. Q with this. is misleading. Go ahead. <laughs> it's Quinton. Quinton. It's Quinton time. Quill. Quinton, Quinton making this long, rambling intro. Yeah, Quill, comma, Peter. So, Go like, ahead. Like I was saying, WolverinePodcast.com, promo code at checkout. Marvelous. Get one free month and cancel at any time if you feel like it. Okay. So. For Peter Melnick, ah, no, no, I keep, I always do that accidentally too. You notice that? Uh, eh. But Eddie, you do the intro for this. We have someone on the line, direct from the great Keystone State of Pennsylvania. Whereabouts? We won't tell you. Parts unknown. He, Parte une. And a Marvel workmaster, if there was, got to meet him, I think, for the first time last year, at one of the cons at um, Terrificon. Thank you. Possibly. No, it is. It's Ron Friends. Ron, thank you for your patience and welcome. It's great to be with you. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Peter. How you doing? Okay. Pretty good. Hopefully better now. <laughs> Ron, I had a birthday during my intro, so believe me, I understand how long that rambling it was. But no, I di- I not at all. <laughs> Obviously, you guys enjoy what you do. That's always important. Heck yeah. Well, and likewise, you've been at it for quite some time. <laughs> when it comes to loving what you do, 
I ended up listening to you on the podcast Cartoonist Kayfabe by Jim Rugg and Ed Pisker, and you were phenomenal, and I messaged you on Facebook that night. I'm like, Ron, you want to do our podcast? Because you're, you're really, really good, and you're really, really funny. You want to come on our show? Please, please, please. And you're like... No pressure, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us on the program today. My pleasure, really. Now... Let's get to the big one first. You just made your return to Marvel Comics for the most recent, I believe it was Sensational Spider-Man? Yeah. Sensational (laughs) Spider-Man, colon, uh, self-improvement, exclamation point. Uh, Yeah, it was a one-shot. The return that I've made, in quotes, is uh, due solely to uh, this anniversary that they're celebrating. where I guess they wanted to join the party with DC doing action and Detective 1000, and they decided, well, you know, we sort of kind of timely kind of started it around the same time, so we should get to do a 1000 too. So they're doing all kinds of different specials and one-shots involving uh, Marvel's history, and and I am uh, what one would call Marvel's history. No bias, no bias though? They they pulled some of us out of cold storage and asked us if we were interested in doing some projects. No bias, though. Marvel totally is doing this better than DC. Just saying. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that. That's wonderful. Well, I'd like to know in what aspect, because sometimes, depending on what you look at, the numbering is a little wonky. Yeah, well, Marvel doesn't have... I don't think Marvel has any kind of... even comes close to a single title that's gone a thousand uninterrupted. No, not like action or detective, no. It was pointed out to me that some titles just went, wait, how did you get from this to this? And when you had the buy numeral listings on some comics for that period of time, it was like, wait, one's more pronounced, darker than one is faded. Wait a minute, which way am I going here? I know when uh, Max Bemis did the most recent Moon Knight series, they were including like the mini series, like a, the four issue mini series, as a part of the Moon Knight numbering. Oh, so oh, oh, oh. That's okay. how it well, we had to deal with that on Spider Girl because they were. They, they tried to make a, an issue uh, or a, a landmark out of the fact that we ran 100, the, the first series, yeah. Spider, Simply Spider-Girl, ran 100 issues right. uninterrupted, and it was the longest-running solo female character in Marvel history, and then somebody brought up She-Hulk, but for She-Hulk to beat us, they would have to take all the different volumes, all the different iterations of She-Hulk to, uh, you know, no, no one volume of She-Hulk ran 100 issues. No, so. no, exactly. You need some good legal defense to defeat She-Hulk. Get it? Because <laughs> she's a yeah, lawyer. It's all, none of it means anything, especially once you're both canceled. So, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, this it's, is true. Good point. Yeah, but I guess it was proliferant throughout all those titles. that Because I remember Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Hulk and Captain Marvel all having those two numbers going on and stuff. And as I was hoping, I said, I, I think I got this order right. When I was trying to look for back issues to get this run, I said, okay, one equals 32, and, you know, from there. Eddie, the king well, of math. I, I can't keep track anymore. I go into the comic book stores now, and I'm completely lost <laughs> as to what would be the, what's considered the core title and what, you know, what, what a mini, you know, where the, the miniseries begin and end, and uh, I'm completely confused. <laughs> I don't know how anybody would... would uh, jump on board these days uh, but I'm also an old man so you know I, I find a lot of un- probably misplaced pride uh, because I'm older uh, and because I've been reading Marvel especially since the mid to late 60s is that I, I'm very pr- you know happy that I got to work on volume one of Thor and volume one of Spider-Man you know and uh, was still part of the original numbering from the original creators and uh, that's very that, cool. That means something to uh, to guys like me that have so little to hold on to, <laughs> or not as much as you used to be able to hold on to. I don't know. Whatever, whatever <laughs> applies. <laughs> well, I, I wow. do draw funny books for a living, so there's yeah. you know there's not a it's not a lot, one of those things you can walk into a to a, a a mall or a food store and just start telling people that and they'd care. You know, well, do, you Bob, Bob Kane used kind of fame. Let's put it that way. Bob Kane used to do that. <laughs> I'm going to pay for my meal with a picture of Batman. Well, more power to Bob Kane. <laughs> uh, well, two things there, and you're going just where I was going to ask as far as your, your your beginnings and how we, the readers, came to know your name and what you did. But before that, if you were to go into a comic book store and the attendant or whatever title you want to put, clerk, said, what's a spinner rack? Run. That's the first thing. Well, there you go. Yeah. Run, run yeah, fast. I, I remember yeah. spinner racks. When, I, when my brother and I have a brother that's three years older, and uh, when he and I were reading comics in our heyday in the late 60s, early 70s, we went to 
a national record mart, a sun drug, and a uh, some kind, you know, a newsstand. It was I, I forget what the name of it was, but it was a a newsstand that had like the dirty magazines in the back and uh, and regular magazines up front. And Did uh, they fall we in went mud. Three different places on Tuesday night uh, with our allowance to to buy. Uh, well, we started when there were 12. There was the 12, 15, and 25 cents. That's were, just were what I was going to ask. What the, what the prices you remember starting is 12 yeah. cents. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we started at 12, and, and uh, DC went to the big 25-cent giants with the old reprints in the back, and mm. Marvel settled in, I think, at 15 for a while before they went to 20 and then 25, and, and of course... I think I, I came in at 30 yeah. thereabouts myself yeah. well yeah. you're 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 a child a little bit too, well uh, hey not, yeah, i don't think too know. too far off from you but... back in a bus embryo <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny what are we gonna do about peter then i don't know <sighs> i don't know you mean the guy who didn't know who the heck i was until he uh googled me and went to <laughs> marvel online and looked I, up some stuff i i was not at the, present at the time of that i was not witness to yeah, anything. yeah i had to look up all these comics that i drew with bear skins and knives and stuff <laughs> what was your first exposure on to comics and if you remember what titles and that kind of stuff uh well i we started with dc the first comic i remember having around the house when i was a kid i just recently bought myself a copy of it uh because it's not a it's not a, a, a high profile book it was a, an issue of world's finest with Superman and Batman, yeah, and it was uh, 1964, which means I would have been like four years old. My brother would have been seven, and that's the first book I remember being around the house. As we've discussed it over the years, whether or not that's anecdotal, <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> but it was you know that early that there were comics around the house, and uh, and I've been you know drawing ever since I can remember. I don't remember a time when I wasn't drawing. Uh, but we, yeah, we were Marvel. We weren't Marvel guys until the cartoons, the Spider-Man cartoon, and the uh, the Marvel superhero cartoons. Uh, we also had a, a much older brother, a brother that's 13 years older than I am, that was in college when we were kids, and would send us Manila envelopes of comic books that that he would buy from you know local shops and stuff where he was in Indiana, PA. And he would send us these Manila envelopes, and he didn't know what we were reading. And he was sending us Marvel comics. He was also, I and think, then, sending you spy directives, and like behind the uh, books, you <laughs> no, just didn't see it. <laughs> but, but that was some of our first exposure to some of the. You know, he would buy the twenty-five cent reprint giants, and 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 buy some Marvel books and everything. The first Spider-Man I bought off the racks would have been in, in like sixty-seven, mm. around the time of the cartoon. It was the. Uh, it was in, it was in the, the numbers, it was in the 60s, uh, the one where Kingpin has Spider-Man by the ankles and he's spinning him around mm. uh, okay. into Ramita's run and everything. So, yes, yes. It's funny and how... I, and I discovered uh, Ditko through reprints and, and such. But, uh, well, the stuff so, you're... Yeah, I mean, I've been reading comics pretty much all my life and, uh, and benefited from, as, as kids do, from, uh, you know... Doing that much reading, you're usually like a grade or two ahead in reading and <laughs> comprehension and all that wonderful stuff. So my mom recognized the benefits of them. And and uh, also, early on, uh, my sainted mother realized that uh, somebody was getting paid to create these things. So she never tried to dissuade me or discourage me from, from pursuing it as a viable career. And didn't throw the comic books out, maybe, too. No, never. Yes! Never. <laughs> Good, good, very good. It sounds like the stuff that you're saying from the 60s and so on, you discovered Ditko and so on, and I discovered that, but it was through the reprint, meaning the Marvel Tales stuff when that came right, out. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I miss those books. I, I I hate the fact that things are only reprinted and the connection to the reprints is only through high-end collections now and everything because, of course, back when we were doing it in the 60s, Marvel had only been around, I mean, for only what, eight years or something like that at that point. Um, but I, I really valued, as I was growing up, that, that connection to the history and understanding what was what. You know, I mean, I, when I go on Facebook now and there's these Facebook groups that you, I, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes am shocked at how young some of the people are and how little they really know about the history of it. They, I mean, they, they like what they like. They're reading what they're reading. That's the way it's supposed to be. But, 
you know, they'll, they'll, somebody will run a picture of Daredevil in his old yellow and black costume, and they'll go, what was that? When did he ever wear that? And it's like, <laughs> what are you doing as part of this group if you don't know that? Now, you guys actually just mentioned Marvel Tales. They recently brought those back. Uh, they're running, I believe, like as an $8 book, and it's mm. three the True stories. Believers line and stuff, yeah. Kind of. But, but it, True Believers is that strict $1 thing, which is a wonderful thing to see, to be honest. Um, right. But, but yeah, a three-issue compilation, which yes. is about 8 bucks. It's Marvel Tales. And, and I look like and a yeah. character a month. So, like, they, I, I think around the time of Avengers Endgame, they did a Thanos one. They just came out with a Hulk one, which I'm kind of inclined. And now I'm like, ooh, I kind of want to read that. Mm-hmm. But oh, that's interesting. Good. It's cool Good. seeing that. And I mean, I've seen the headlines on social media about the Dio being a little disturbed that the reprints are selling well, uh, as opposed to the new material. And uh, you know, it would be nice if there were some lessons to be learned from that too. I don't, I don't know what those lessons might be. The only thing that lends me to say is that a, a good, a pretty good friend. He is a good friend. Uh, we got to meet through a comic book store down in the state of Florida, he said, see, it's just proof that Marvel Comics can sell material for a dollar. Yeah. You know, they can they can do that. Um, real that's quick, a whole other story. On the topic well, of those... Back in the day, uh, when I shared studio space with him, Pat Olive was working on Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Mm. It was a 99-cent experiment. Yes. Along with a couple other books. And uh, they were having trouble giving them away because everybody assumed they were reprint, and nobody was buying reprints at the time. Uh, and it was hard. it was a hard sell trying to get people to realize, no, no, it's new material by Kurt Busick and Pat Olaf, and you'd really like it if you read it, and yes, it's only 99 cents. Somehow they were they were either assuming it was reprint or crap because it was 99 cents. And, and it's, it, I, don't know how, I don't know how you deal with that. And the same amount of material meaning the same amount of pages, correct? Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah maybe, I don't know if it was me because I saw that and I said, oh, only 99 cents, what's going on here? And eventually I did amass some. But um, he still doesn't write them, probably. Maybe, maybe I mean, that's part of my bio. In <laughs> in order amount of material, in order amount to catch up on. But I used that recently, by the way. Did it look like though from the cover? Maybe it looked like oh, maybe it's geared towards kids. Maybe that's why it's so cheap. No, Is that... no, they were they were straight Spider-Man stories. They were done mm. really, really well. They, okay. It was, in fact, the people that were reading it. One of the reasons they were enjoying it was because it was during the. Uh, I think some of it ran during the Clone Saga, and and as the Clone Saga was getting bogged down. People were, inter- were were interested in reading good, solid, twenty-two page Spider-Man adventures, and that's what Kurt Busiek was writing. I mean, it was a it was a phenomenal book. It was really, really well done. So it was a shame if people weren't reading it for whatever the reason was. But uh, I mean, I you know the, the the fact that I came into comics when I did, uh, you know, I don't understand the need for the high quality paper. Or any of that stuff, because I, you know, there there are things about. We all love the comics that we discovered. That that you know, the comics that were being produced when we discovered comics. So for me, that's the late '60s, early '70s. That's my wheelhouse. That's the kind of stuff I enjoy reading. That's the kind of stuff I enjoy producing, and uh, it will always pretty much be the case. And uh, I, so you, I, I can't begrudge other people that same fondness and connection to the material that they discovered. You know, it just makes sense. That's the cool thing about comics. Like, we all have our, you know, like you said, our entry points when we got in. Eddie's an 80s guy, and I cannot get enough of 90s books, for example. And you you were responsible for Thunderstrike, and number one has that, you know, the shiny cover that, you know, you move it around, it's got a rainbow effect to it. And as you said on Cartoonist Kayfabe, they added more lightning bolts to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I tried to get away with one lightning bolt in production and put in many, many more to make more for the uh, for the, the stamping or whatever it was. Yeah, the foil stamping. And I, I love those foil covers. Like, at the comic shop by us, Main Street Comics, they just got a ton of 90s books in, and one of the books that was sitting in the back, I eyed it. I'm like, I need that. Hey, can you put it on the side for me? Silver Surfer number 50 with that, you know, the... 3D-ish foil cover of Thanos. I'm just like, it's the things that we love that you know got us in, and that that sure. they're gimmicks. But you know what? I, I love did it again with Silver Surfer 100. Also, if you, you well, now I'm gonna have to try and track that down. Thanks. What, you didn't know that? Well, that, no. that my the thing I've really discovered from uh, being on Facebook for the last I don't know three years, whatever it's been, two three years, is that uh, it, it's. <laughs> It's not about me. And comics is one of those wonderful things like, you know, your Saturday morning cartoons that you watched or the toys that you owned. 
that are all, it, it's very much intrinsic to your personal nostalgia. And uh, it's, it's a great privilege, and, and it's very humbling for me to be a part of people's personal nostalgia, you know, their, their fond childhood memories. But that's pretty much the extent of what people react to on my Facebook page. Uh, I don't get personal on my Facebook page. My Facebook page is there as, as, as part of my professional outreach to kind of remind people I'm still alive mm-hmm. and, and show commissions and, and share work from before and show pencils along with finished products and such. But anyway, uh, the, the, the posts that get the most likes are the posts where it, it reminds people of the fond memory of buying that book when they were a kid and buying it with an iced tea on the way to their grandmothers and uh, sitting under a tree and reading that particular issue of Thor or Spider-Man or whatever. And, you know, that is not to be underestimated. That's wonderful. But, you know, I've also tried doing posts about my early days before Marvel or, you know, uh, projects that didn't sell or whatever, and tumbleweeds will blow by, you know, because it doesn't have that personal connection for the people that are viewing it. And, you know, so that is, again, it's, it's not something I take lightly. It's something I'm very uh, humbled by, but it's all about that personal connection. It's all about the fact that I'm a part of their history and not that they're interested in mine, you know? Sure, sure. What, if you recall, and I think you can, who were the first characters that you drew that you're getting paid for? Oh, that's easy. Uh, that would be Kesar the Savage was the first one. And then I, I did two Kesars. Uh, I did a Conan, a King Conan, uh, when they were doing that book. And, uh, and then I was offered King Conan, and I turned it down because I was still working at the animation studio that I was uh, 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 an art assistant at. Uh, I got that job. I, I, I showed some samples to, to Jim Shooter. He took them to New York. But it, and it was like a year or more before I was contacted from Marvel. In the meantime, I had gotten this job at an, a local animation studio. And uh, so when Marvel did call and started giving me work, I, I was going to keep my job at the animation studio as best I could. So they offered me King Conan. I turned it down. Then they offered me Kesar, and I was afraid they'd stop offering, so I took Kesar mm. and uh, was working on Kesar, which turned into Star Wars, which turned into a couple of Indiana Jones fill-ins, which turned into a regular gig on Star Wars, which at some point, I, I mean, at one point I was afraid I wasn't going to get to do superheroes. Uh, and then I was hired to do Marvel Team-Up, and Marvel Team-Up got me uh, some exposure in the Spider-Man office. Uh, Spider-Man showed up in KSR at one point as well, which kind of got me Marvel Team-Up, which got me some Spider-Man fill-ins, which got me Spider-Man. When they offered me Spider-Man, I went full-time into comics. Very good. Well, um, the team-up was around what time period, or was that the initial run? Uh, well, it would have been around the same time. I did the Marvel team-up where Spider-Man disappears for the Secret Wars as well, and I did some issues before that. It, yeah, I only did a handful of issues. I, I was the regular guy, but it, you'd be hard-pressed to, to see that in the, in the flow of the stories. So it's somewhere around 84, uh, I guess, and same like with with uh, the King Conan, and I guess the Kazar, that run, that came out in the 80s as well? Yeah, that was, uh, it was the one of the experimental uh, direct sales only titles. Uh, the one that was launched by uh, Bruce Jones and, and uh, Brent Anderson. I took over after Brent Anderson. Now, Ron, you had mentioned in regards to the, uh, you know, you were wondering when am I going to work on a superhero book. Yeah. If it didn't happen, I admit, though, You'd probably have made a pretty bitchin' uh, Muppet Babies over at Star for Marvel, their uh, Star Division. I would like to think that I would have done the best uh, that I knew how to do on, on whatever I ended up on. Absolutely. Uh, I actually, the time I, I actually more recently, within the last five, ten years, have, have done some Archie stuff with Tom DeFalco, because he still has some connections over at Archie. And uh, I did three Jughead stories and then a short story for, so for an anthology all with DeFalco, and really enjoyed the heck out of it. I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it was the big three. It was Marvel, DC, and Archie for, the, for you know, the, the lion's share of my childhood. So working, working for Archie was... I, I actually was talking to one of the editors that, that, that uh, had hired me, and 
I, I think he thought I was laying it on a little, little thick <laughs> because I was really happy to be there. I mean, they, I mean, they weren't paying what Marvel and DC were or anything, but I was getting a real kick out of doing these characters. These characters were as much a part of my childhood as, as the superheroes. And, and uh, I kind of got the impression he thought I was either shining him or <laughs> just a little over-enthusiastic or something. I don't know. But, it's uh, kind of crazy. Yeah, but, it's kind of crazy seeing some of the uh, Marvel, former Marvel and DC talent that have ended up over at Archie as well, because you end up having, like you said, yourself, Tom DeFalco, as well as I believe Terry Austin was working on their uh, Sonic the Hedgehog comic, like until fairly recently before they. Yeah, you know, Ron Lim ended up over there, I think, and uh, yeah, quite a few guys. I mean, they, they you know, like I said, the page rates weren't there or anything, but uh, you know, if, if we wanted to stay working in comics, you uh, take what you can get. Uh, Tom had a, he started out at Archie and. Still had a lot of personal connections over there. So, I mean, when he, when Spider Girl wrapped up and everything, he's pretty much semi-retired at this point and not really chasing work. And uh, so he will occasionally, for fun. I mean, he enjoys those characters, and he wrote a a Reggie mini series that was done in the new style with a more realistic style, and they actually had offered it to me at the pencil, but I I just wasn't able to put it into my schedule. Were there the same amount of pages for Archie titles that other comic books had? Uh, the ones we did for the for the Jughead Digest, yeah, I think they were in the they were in the eighteen to twenty page range, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I always thought that that would be sure. Well, you you do you could do a story in a couple of pages, type of thing. But yeah, I wasn't the, sure the, with uh, you know. the thing I did for the anthology. It was for a uh, uh, April Fool's anthology thing, and uh, it was a story that Falco wrote, and uh, that was much that was shorter. I think I was like. A I can understand and appreciate you being excited about doing that because Archie is is iconic. I mean, going back to I don't know the year that they that that started, but you're talking I don't know. Late well, 40s. back in the 30s, yeah, it, was, it, it started was. back in the 30s as well. Yeah. I, the uh, but I mean, I the stuff I grew up on in the 60s and 70s actually, uh, Archie Comics helped me uh, learn how to draw women uh, back when that was necessary, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know Dan DiCarlo and Harry Lucy and and some of those uh, classic Archie guys uh, along with guys like John Romita, of course, and Don Heck, you know, had the human, the, had the female, human female figure kind of down to a science and, and uh, was wonderful reference for, for keeping it simple and, uh, and keeping the line work uh, basic. And, uh, and you really can't, if you overdo the detail on a female figure, you, you lose it. So, who was who uh, some of the were, um, uh, other characters that you've done? Because then Spider-Girl comes to the forefront, and now, but since, in, in, in addition to the ones that you said, your others that you've found yourself regularly drawing for, who uh, who else have you well, done? Well, I mean, they, by, the, by the time they hired me to do Spider-Man, I did, a, what, two and a half years on Spider-Man. That went, then we went over to Thor for like six or seven years. Thunderstrike lasted two years. Went over to Superman for a couple of years over at DC, uh, and kicked around over there for a bit, and then came back over to Marvel for the MC2 line, which uh, lasted, uh, aside from Spider-Girl, uh, A-Next, the book that I was doing, only lasted a year, but then we also did some miniseries and stuff with some of the other characters, and, and then Pat Olive ultimately left Spider-Girl to do other projects, and I came in just... It was one of the times that Spider-Girl was canceled. I just came in to do the last few issues. But it got uncanceled again, and <laughs> uh, I ended up doing Spider-Girl through issue 100, and then we relaunched Amazing, and we did that for 30 issues, and on and on and on. And uh, some of those... You know, now I'm working over at a place called Sit Comics. It's an independent publisher out of California that's doing uh, a series of titles, and I'm doing a character called the Blue Baron with it, uh, the creator of sitcomics, Mr. Darren Henry, who used to work in uh, sitcoms, which is why he calls it sitcomics. And, mm-hmm. and he's a child of, as we were talking about, loving what you love, he was a child of 70s Marvel. And he tried to hire Sal Buscema to do the Blue Baron, and Sal's no longer penciling, but he said, if you get Ron Friends, I'll ink it. And so mm-hmm. Sal and I are working together on the Blue Baron. Very nice. I was just thinking uh, yeah, back it, to... You know, it's been... I, after all these years, I'm still able to pay my rent by drawing... Big strong guys in capes, and uh, you know that's the American dream. He's digging ditches in the rain. I'll tell you that. Oh, so. absolutely. When you mentioned Anex and the other, I guess offshoot titles was one of them. Like I don't know, J Two. Yes. Uh, J Two was yeah. actually done by Ron Lim. The miniseries oh. that that I worked on were the Buzz 
and Dark Devil. And, yes. Uh, you know, a couple of those. So. For one reason or another, I didn't even do the, we did a couple of A-Next miniseries that, uh, after the main title was, was canceled, and I don't know what else I was doing at the time, but apparently I wasn't available for those because they were done by other guys. There you go. Other work that's uh, keeping you busy nowadays? Yeah, well, I, I'm doing commissions through Catskill Comics, and I'm working on uh, Blue Baron for Sit Comics. The third issue just came out, uh, I believe, the weekend of uh, of San Diego, and it's available uh, through digital and, and also through print. Uh, he's kind of doing a grassroots uh, sales thing now where certain uh, certain shops are handling it. If you go to uh, sitcomics.net, you can see if there's a shop near you that's handling it. Uh, the plan is to ultimately be distributing through Diamond, and hopefully you know, that, that increased exposure will just uh, continue to spread the word about sitcomics, and everybody will become a Blue Baron fan. Can we get a synopsis on uh, this character? Because I have never well, heard yeah, of Like I said, he's, he's a big Marvel 70s fan, um, and, and all of them are superhero tropes with like a sitcom twist. Blue Baron, in particular, is a character in the vein of the Phantom that grew out of the Revolutionary War, and some people think he's immortal, yeah, uh, but other people uh, think or know that it's really passed down from father to son. And uh, so there have been Blue Barons since the Revolutionary War, and so he's a steadfast, square-jawed superhero who uh, is unfortunately involved in a, a super scientific accident that uh, he switches bodies with a 13-year-old named Ernie Rodriguez hmm. and uh, wackiness ensues. <laughs> so Ernie always wanted to be a superhero, just not that one. And, uh, and the Blue Baron himself is trying to survive middle school uh, while hoping to fix things. Now, the lesson we learn here is care for what you wish for, right? Care for what you wish for, and uh, don't pee into fountains during thunderstorms or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you said Phantom, too. I thought of a couple of other, I think, Phantoms. One was all in purple, uh, Leaf Falk, I think the name comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The yeah, you, that well, one? You, yes, that's the Phantom. Yeah. Okay. You, that was a character he's known as the Ghost Who Walks because people yes. don't know that it's passed down from father to son. And then I doubt over a TC, but that was the Phantom Stranger. Yes, that's a completely different. Character. Okay, all right. Now you had mentioned that you recently uh, did. You've been doing some stuff with Sabu Sema, and one of the things you had recently done was the Sensational Spider-Man uh, one-shot that just came out for the Marvel 80th anniversary. We, yeah, we did a ten-page backup in a uh, a one-shot that Marvel put out for the anniversary. Uh, the The main feature was actually a. Uh, it was a project that I. I, I don't know how it's selling, and I don't know how many people are interested, but there was the the industry legend where the black costume was originally suggested slash created by a fan named Randy Schuler, who had uh, pitched a story to Jim Shooter where Spider-Man gets a black costume. Uh, it was created by Reed Richards, and it's super scientific, but it's mostly black, and it has... You know, and it's a wackiness ensues where Peter's having trouble handling the uh, the ins and outs of the new suit, and it doesn't stick. But the bottom line was that Shooter, they weren't able to hammer it into a story. Tom DeFalco worked with the, the young guy and tried to get it to an issue that could be published, but they weren't able to hammer it out to a story that was really working. This has so, the makings of a what-if story. I'm sorry. Well, they, they, it could have been in continuity at the time, but it, it just never, it was not to be. But Shooter, I don't know whether he already had the beginnings of his th thought process for Secret Wars in mind or not, but he liked the idea. He, he paid Randy Schuler 200-some bucks for the idea, okay, for, for the idea of Spider-Man in a black costume. I would like to think that he probably had in the back of his mind what ended up being the use for it, which was the Secret Wars thing where everybody disappears at the end of one month and then comes back with some grand visual change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, Spider-Man came back with the black suit. Unfortunately, over the years, 
legend has become. I mean, just recently on Facebook, there was this post where somebody got a hold of Jim Shooter's letter to Randy Schuler, where he said, you know, we're going to pay you this much, fill out the voucher, we're going to pay you this much for the idea, thanks very much. And people were going, did you know that Venom was created by a fan and Marvel bought it for $200? What a ripoff! You know, and, and, and I felt compelled to step in and say, no, he didn't invent Venom. Well, he invented the suit. I said, no, he didn't do that either. He came up with the idea of a black costume. That's Completely it. different. And if you read this, what I was gratified to see in this self-improvement one-shot is that they actually do show and transcribe Randy Schuler's original two plots. They, the original pitch and the one where he was working with Tom DeFalco to try to hammer it into something else. And they actually run both. So you can see his description of the suit, and it's very different from the black costume that, uh, that Jim Shooter and Mike Zeck created for Secret Wars. So, you know, it, it's not a direct tie-in in any way, but so it was sitting in a file somewhere, and somebody decided it would be kind of a neat idea for the anniversary to pull this out, and finally they gave it to Peter David and Rick Leonardi to, uh, you know, it, it, I, think, I believe the credit says it's Peter David based on, a, on an idea by Randy Schuler. Because to really make it a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, they pretty much had to to do quite a few changes to it and everything. But it's finally Randy Schuler has gotten his his credit in a Marvel comic for creating a story about Spider-Man in a black suit. It doesn't work out. And now Randy's going to have the hottest book in comic book history. It's like a weekly series he gets. <laughs> well, there, there's our, there is a series of symbiote Spider-Man currently running. Oh, yeah. Again, yeah. he that's not... That's not what Randy created. So, uh, you know, hopefully this, uh, the next time this, this rumor starts that Marvel ripped off some kid for the idea for Venom, because it was Tom DeFalco that came up with the idea that, that the black suit from Secret Wars was a symbiote, uh, which became the, you know, the, the, the root of it becoming uh, Venom, of course. But uh, so, you know, I'm, I, I'm hoping that from now on this will be a known quantity and it will not, no longer, uh, you know, rise up every five or ten years <laughs> as this zombie rumor that Marvel ripped off uh, Randy Schuler uh, like he's uh, Siegel and Schuster or something, you know. It's funny how, you know, something will get put on the Internet and everything, it'll just keep regurgitating and going and going and going. It and really going. is bizarre. It really is bizarre. And, 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 I, and again, I'm, I'm always surprised because I've never really, I'm not really a collector. I'm a fan, um, and, uh, but I, I'm always surprised at, at how little people know about the, the history of the industry. Um, and, and again, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that when I was reading comics, I, I mentioned briefly before the 25-cent DCs that were reprinting the old Simon and Kirby stuff and everything, you know. And, and you know, certainly I, I, I had my preferences, and, uh, and Jack Kirby can be a, an acquired taste. To, usually that's something, Kirby is something you, you, you come to appreciate uh, when you're a kid, you know, I always liked Ramita and Basema better than Kirby at one point, but then I, I grew to admire and, 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 uh, understand exactly what Jack was doing. Sounds like me. Was. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm looking at I, Kirby. I think, that's a, I think that's true of a lot of us, but the bottom line is when I was reading those 25 cent DCs, I would read the Simon and Kirby stories and there was no denying the craftsmanship of these things mm. that, and, and there was no, uh, there was no denying how what I was seeing in the current comics was had grown out of this root, you know, and I, I just always kind of had a sense of that that I think fans tend to lose now because you have to pay real money to see any of these classics, you know. I just don't think they're exposed to the classics and don't understand how, how you know how half how half Foster begat. Uh, Joe Kubert and John Buscema, or yeah. or you know any of that. How how Mort Meskin begat Jack early Jack Kirby. You know, I mean, I, I don't think fans today have that that sense of uh, how the industry has evolved. And again, there's more industry now than there was when I was a kid because 
I'm not as young as I used to be either. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I miss that sense of uh, continuity that, uh, you know, that, that you have some, some idea of where these ideas came from or, and what the early Spider-Mans were and what the early Daredevils were and what the early Fantastic Four stories were and, and all that without, hopefully, without being uh, uh, an idiot about it where, you know, it's not Fantastic Four if it's not Jack and Stan. I mean, I've never been that kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I find that tiresome at times i mean i find it tiresome when people are still saying that the marvel movies are crap because they're not uh lockstep with the uh, the source material you know that kind of thing I, yeah I, that's that's i don't it. have any time for that i mean you know relax and maybe you'll enjoy the movies more <laughs> they're <laughs> just a, movies that's another yeah. regurgitating thing too and i agree i you know from the first spider-man movie with you know growing Stuff out of his fingertips. No, that wasn't, but you go with it. But, I mean, Eddie, you were upset when the thing didn't have pants in the new Fantastic Now, Ford. that was justified. Cut it out. <laughs> the no pants well, there, thing. There were a lot, a lot of other things to have a problem with in that Fantastic Four movie. But, He's this, this but is I, true. I'm one of the few people that I know that, uh, you know, Tom DeFalco and I really enjoyed the, uh, the, uh, the first two Fantastic Four movies. Not the Roger Corman one, but the two with Chris yeah. Evans. And, yes. Uh, Young Griffin. Yes. I I enjoyed the the heck out of those, especially the second one. But I enjoyed yes. both of them. I, I yes. thought okay, when great. I walked out of both of those movies, well, boy, I I, I would kind of like to see them do Peter Parker as close to my perception of Peter Parker mm. as they got the Fantastic Four to my perception of the Fantastic Four. And but but that perception thing is a big issue as well because I, I I've found this ever since I was a kid reading the books is that if you took you take ten people that read and love Spider-Man, okay, and ask them who should play Peter Parker, and you're going to get ten different answers. Yeah. Because as visual as the, as the medium is, it leaves this wonderful area for your imagination to fill in the blanks. And, you know, so even though it's a visual medium, I, you, you get ten different answers from people who think, you know, should play a character or how they see the character, how they hear the character's voice, how they perceive the character. And usually it, it comes from within them. You know, I mean, they're relating to different aspects. We're all relating to some different aspect uh, of Peter Parker. I mean, I remember at one point listening to John Romita Jr. talk about Peter Parker being the classic geek. And that perception carried over into Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And one time, Pat Olive, they were doing an annual or something, and he was doing a feature piece with Pete standing there with the flood pants and, uh, you know, the pocket protector and all this kind of stuff. But none of that was canon. None of that was in the books. Mm-hmm. Pete was not a, uh, uh, that kind of a nerd. Oh, I was. Uh, well, I'm, that's what I'm saying. And John Peter Jr., I can guarantee never was, but that's how he saw Pete. When I was growing up reading Spider-Man... What I related to with Pete was that he was invisible. <laughs> that, that, you know, he had one guy that picked on him, but otherwise most people didn't pay any attention to him at all because that's what I was like in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't in the yearbook at all. <laughs> you know, I, wa- I wasn't voted most artistic. A good friend of mine was. I wasn't voted, you know, funniest or anything. People I knew were, you know, but I was pretty much just, I was one of the, 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 the great invisible mass. See, I think and, if you weren't uh, in a yearbook, that only means one thing, you were unavailable for the day of the photo shoot. No, that's a, well, I, okay, I had my shot in the yearbook. I was actually in band tech crew. Hell yeah. So now we know. Uh, okay. So, you know, but, but I think we do. We, we were, you know, that's one of the things that's wonderful about Peter Parker is that he's, he's us, and you can project a little bit onto Peter Parker. But that... That also falls into the category of casting and all this. I mean, I've always been amazed at how well Marvel has done at casting these characters. I mean, I, I can't think of a complete miss. I'm sure if you talk to ten fans, at least five of them will think that they've had some real misses, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's what makes horse races. There you go. <laughs> that's right. I'm curious. Uh, you had mentioned the idea of you know who we think these versions of the characters could be if they were to do a you know a film version of them. And you mentioned right. you know with Spider-Man. Myself, I've always wanted to go with you know Topher Grace, the guy who played Eric Foreman on that '70s show. Right. Who would then oh, go he would on, terrific. Yeah. 
he ended up going on to play Venom, and I'm just like, come on, man. Like, that doesn't work. And the reason that they got him to play Eddie Brock is because their version of Eddie Brock was Peter's opposite number. Yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that's why they got him, because he, he could have been Peter Parker, and he was just the anti-Peter Parker rather than being this, you know, the Eddie Brock from the comic books. So I get that. When I was a kid, my choice for uh, Peter Parker, everybody looked at me like I was crazy, was uh, uh, Tom Hanks from Bosom Buddies. I thought he, I thought he looked like a Ditko Peter Parker. Oh, and okay. Now you framed it with Ditko, the yeah. Comedy in the costume and could have played. You know, I always thought uh, a couple of really good J. Jonah Jamesons would have been the guy that played uh, Milburn Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies, hmm. or. Uh, Frank Sutton, who played Sergeant Carter on Gomer Pyle, I thought he would have been terrific. Shazam! Uh, during the late 70s, early 80s, uh, actually is when I was working on the book. Uh, it was right before I started working on the book. Do you remember a, a, a sitcom, a short-lived sitcom called Double Trouble, I think it was called, with these, uh, the, these twin girls on it? It's kind of. Either one yeah. of them would have been a terrific Mary Jane, because when they smiled, their eyes crinkled up the same way Mary Jane's do, and they both had the birthmarks, uh, the, the, the smile lines that Mary Jane had. Yeah. And I thought they would have been terrific. Another Peter Parker, one of my other, my other choice for Peter Parker, did you ever see a show called, uh, well, it, it, it's any number of things. He's appeared on a, cu- a couple of different things, and I'm desperately trying to think of his name while I'm talking. Oh, shoot, okay. I uh, Ethan Embry is his name, uh, but he was mm-hmm. on a show called Freaky Links, uh, but also was in some of those uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt vehicles, teen vehicles, and stuff like that. He play, actually played the son in one of the uh, vacation movies and stuff. But he was terrific in this Freaky Links film, uh, series, short-lived series. And, and I would watch him and go, but, that, but he really met my Peter Parker, you know, I, what I would require of a Pete, a likable, regular guy, who I, I think he would have been terrific, you know. So these days, I mean, of the guys that have played him, I, I really thought uh, Garfield looked like a Ditko Peter Parker, like <laughs> amazingly. Yeah, like the gangly uh, kind of. You know, I look. love Tom Holland, and I and at the time I lo- the only thing I didn't like. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but the only thing I didn't like about uh, Tobey Maguire was that they kept parting his hair on the side. <laughs> Pete never had a side part, you know. It's those little things you got to. Yeah, it's the details. Yeah, the devil's in them. Yeah, well, I mean, especially I. <laughs> I will claim that only because of, obviously I'm a, a very visual guy because I'm an illustrator. Yeah, yeah. Now we're gonna put you on the spot with this one. Okay. Who do you see ever if they bring her in? Who do you see playing Spider Girl in at least the MCU or even a television version? Go for uh, it. I have no idea. I oh. have no idea. I, I, I mean, at one point, there was a, uh, trying to think of her name. I mean, she'd be too old now, but she was the, the young woman who played the voice of Kim Possible, who was something Romano, I think, uh, was a young actress. And I, she actually was on a, a Disney Channel series at the time when she was still a teenager. And, you know, Mayday just has to be, she doesn't have to be ravishingly beautiful, but She's, she has a, uh, she needs to have the personality of a Mary Jane. Uh, so, I, you know, at this point, I don't keep a list of people that I, <laughs> that I would like to see play it. And, and I'm woefully misinformed as to teen actors and actresses at this point. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure any number of actresses could, could uh, pull it off. Uh, you know, I mean, I... I did think at one point uh, within the last five ten years, I saw a picture of Tom Hanks with a beard, with his wife Rita Wilson at some event, and I said, "See, they could play Pete and Mary Jane as the parents of Spider Girl." You know that kind of. Ooh. thing. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, and I don't know if this person would qualify too, but since Peter is one to this Peter is one to ask questions of who would you see playing such and such. And, but they've used this character in other films, but not that Marvel doesn't put a character from one role to another. For Brushman? Cat Dennings. Or Denning, singular. As? Spider-Girl. But she might be too old now. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I don't think she could play a teenager. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, 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 I 
know who you're talking about, but yep, yep. I wouldn't cast her as a teenager at this point. In the interest but, of fairness. Uh, in the... I, you know, it's... They're, yeah, I mean, at one point somebody was talking about uh, Spider-Girl-aged Pete would be, um, oh, for God's sakes, I'm showing my age with not being able to pull these names out, uh, uh, Better Off Dead. Oh, uh, okay, um, yeah. Teen, yeah, the teen actor that, that, that did movies like that early on. Uh, no, Cusack. Uh, John Cusack. Yeah. Which he would be very interesting as an older Pete because you could definitely see him oh playing God. Pete when he was younger, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, my choice, Ethan Embry, could now play Father Pete, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's there, there are any number of actors that could, that could pull this off. It's not like you're only choosing from a, from a small crop, uh, which is why it was always fascinating to me that, you know, the same guy that played the Human Torch ended up playing Captain America and doing such an incredible job. Yeah. I never had any doubt he could play it. I remember talking to people, going like, "But he was the Human Torch, and and he never he's you know he he plays those uh, those irresponsible characters and everything." I said, "Yeah, but but what you're forgetting is he is an actor. <laughs> he's a he's paid to be other people." Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was the same with Michael Keaton playing Batman. He didn't play the same character that he did in Night Shift. But he was you know? Mr. Mom. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> I can't believe anybody gets up, gets worked up about casting anymore since Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. After everybody got so worked up about that, and then it turned out working out, and most of these people now, he's like the OG Batman, and he's the only guy that should play old Batman in a Batman Beyond movie and all this kind of jazz. You know, it's funny to me because... Why does anybody get worked up about casting anymore? Well, ten years go well, by, and then no thing to get think... worked up about, which is if you if you uh, gender swap or race swap or something, they they get all worked up about that. I get so lost when that happens. I just do. But I think yeah, ten years goes by, and then it's a new mindset that comes in. So it, that, even that doesn't bother me though. The, the best example of it I thought was on a Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon that they did a few years back, where you know New York is not homogeneously white anymore. Um, and they took a bunch of the, the supporting characters, the kid characters from the school, and uh, and did some race swapping and all that kind of jazz. And I thought it worked out great. you know. So I don't have any problem with that. I never had a problem with Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin and things like that. I, 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 don't have, I just don't. I just don't have a problem with it. Um, if, they, if that Fantastic Four movie would have been a better movie, I don't think anybody would have had a problem with, uh, with a black Johnny Storm crying out loud you know I, mm. I, that certainly was not the problem with the movie as far as i was concerned it was a movie that was trying to be like a david cronenberg movie and then halfway through they're just like no nah, let's let's drop that idea well yes that's exactly the original director that's exactly what he was trying to do and the studio balked absolutely absolutely and when you when you mentioned you know the uh, race swapping of characters you have flash thompson in the marvel cinematic universe and he's phenomenal and i'm kind of excited for the one day possibility of he could become Venom, you know, you know, Agent Venom. Why not? Anything's possible. I mean, I, I don't creatively. I mean, that's the other thing too. Is the fact that I've gotten to play in the sandbox. I think I'm less affected by things that are obviously done for story reasons. I mean, the idea that bullies are a different breed these days, and if he's going to a an advanced school for smart kids you know then 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 the type of bullying that he's victimized by is going to be different than flash thompson the school jock you know that kind of thing and and i so i don't have a i i understand it i see what they're trying to do i see what kind of dynamic they're trying to create and i don't have a problem with it you know so i it's the same thing really with uh, Marissa Tomei is Aunt May. I mean, believe me, I, I sat there in a the theater with uh, J.K. Simmons as, as Jonah Jameson and and the original Aunt May, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. I know who but, you're talking about, yes, too. Yes, yes. her name. She was fantastic. It was right out of the pages, you know, and uh, that was great. But I also understand that I'm getting older, so is Marissa Tomei, and she's probably the age that Aunt May was supposed to be when... Stanley and Steve Ditko created her, you know. <laughs> I mean, Roger Stern used to always joke that he he was 
he was going to blow everybody's mind during his run with John Romita Jr. He was going to blow everybody's mind and have Aunt May have her 65th birthday. <laughs> because considering how Ditko drew her, <laughs> you know, I mean, it became this uh, how old must she be type of thing, you know. But even Roger was seeing her as being, you know, just reaching retirement age in the 80s. So, you know. Plus, nobody ages normally at Marvel anyway. They, yeah, openly admitted. I remember when the Amazing Spider-Man issue came out, where Peter Parker's graduation, you know, from high school finally happened, and he's going to ESU, and yeah, that kind of thing. And he was in college for like nine years or more before he graduated college, and then went into graduate school, and on and on and on. Some people go. Some people go to college for that. Becomes another element of comics fandom that I find I'm be amused by. Let's say is that they, every generation wants to own the character. And I think that's another outlook that I've been spared by being fortunate enough to work in it professionally, is that, you know, I don't, I don't feel that way. I, I feel that these characters, when I was hired to work on these characters, I'm hired as a, uh, a keeper of the character. You know, it's not mine. I'm just the custodian of that character for whatever brief time I'm working with it. And my my job is to try not to run it into the ground by the time the next team comes in and keep the wheel spinning. I think that's but, a great way to look at it. I also got a flash of Night at the Museum. From oh, jeez. <laughs> ben Stiller, keeper. Come on, in a good way, please. Move, in Ben a good Stiller. Way. But I, I mean, that, that's what we are. We're, we only borrow the characters while we work on them and uh, you know i also worked on these characters at a time in the 80s and 90s when there was a very different attitude editorially than there is now because now they hire writers to do their version of characters mm. uh it was it was interesting it was very brought into sharp relief for me tom defalco did a couple of books for a british publisher called uh, comic creators on spider-man and he did one on fantastic four and x-men as well, but he interviewed me for the Spider-Man one, and I, when I got a copy of the book and I was reading it, the first part of the book is creative people like you know, of course Stan, but Jerry Conway and and Marv Wolfman and Roger Stern and people like that who talked with Tom about how intimidating it was to try to capture Peter Parker's voice because Peter Parker was a very specific character written by Stan for a hundred issues and you know finding that voice and and not screwing it up but then you crossed a certain Terminator line into more modern creative people different writers and the issue was uh, displaying their take on Peter Parker this was my Peter Parker and so there's a very different attitude of uh, of again being a uh, you know a caretaker uh, rather than in, you know making an impression on the character or doing a version of the character, uh, and I, I I tend to fall in the in the uh, the, the former rather than the latter. You know I mean I, I don't think I don't think anybody's interested in seeing what you know what Ron Friends wants to do to Spider Man. They're interested in seeing Ron Friends do. The Spider-Man that they remember, the Spider-Man that they fondly are connected to, and uh, that's what I try to do. You know, I, I every time I sit down to do a character, I go back to the root and try to find the first, the early appearances and try to to get a sense of what made that character unique to the original creators. You know, what made that character worth doing that wasn't just a rehash of every other character that existed, because creatively, any character goes through a terrible terrible long period of uh, of a game of telephone between creators where you know you get to the point where you're so far away from the the original concept that uh, and, and so oftentimes the creative people don't even realize it you know uh, but it, uh, it can be kind of distressing at times sometimes though you can see that game of telephone and it'll change it for the better like you look at Warren Ellis's run on Moon Knight where he just flipped the character on its ear, and it wasn't the Moon Knight that Doug Munch and Bill Zinkevich did, but then it was its own thing, you know? Sure, sure. And, I, I mean, any idea, the best ideas the, the most, uh, are the most elastic. I mean, I think Spider-Man has, has 
withstood the test of not only time but different treatments. Batman certainly has. My God, uh, Superman has gone through. You know, they, has survived those kinds of uh, moments of elasticity, uh, and uh, I think that's important for for a character to have longevity. Is that the they, they need to be able to, as a concept, they need to be able to, to house multitudes. You know, they, they need to be legion to a certain degree because different creators are going to handle them and different creators are going to try to uh, find a hook in them. And uh, the best characters have multiple hooks you know, for, for people to, to find. I was going to say, you mentioned without uh, elasticity of the characters, I was going to make as a joke Reed Richards, and then I'm like, Oh wait, there actually has been like so many changes to that version of the character, you know, since the Stan and Jack version all the way sure. up to the Jonathan Hickman to now the current, you know, Dan Slot run. It's insane. Well, yeah, because I mean even even in Kirby's run, he took him from uh, you know, the the slender uh stereotypical scientist with the pipe and all that kind of stuff to an action hero. I mean, before Jack was done with him, he was an action hero. Uh and you know, he was very much uh, more on the order of Captain America than he was uh, the professor from Gilligan's Island, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and uh, so any character is that. I mean, Ditko took Spider-Man from a skinny kid to, you know, a well-built, athletic-looking superhero, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, you, you, it, it pays as a, as a creative to be aware of all of that. To uh, you know, to have some sense, if not an encyclopedic knowledge, at least some sense of where the character has been and what the character has endured and what has worked and what hasn't worked as well. You know, like when we when uh, Defalco and I were hired to do Thor, we knew we couldn't do Walt. I mean, if we had tried to do Walt, I think we would have fallen on our face because neither one of us had the the kind of genuine connection and love of the original myths that Walt did. And, you know, but Thor had been a lot of other things before Walt did his take on the character. So, you know, we felt very connected to what Lee and Kirby had done. So we went back and, and kind of took Asgard back to that uh, that that era and, and and our treatment of Thor and we wanted to bring back a more human connection to him and all that kind of stuff you know I I, I Walt really never did much with Sigurd Jarlson other than kind of make him a a Clark Kent gag you know with the glasses and stuff but uh, so we we wanted to bring back a human identity and blah 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 and you know that's what we did and, and history is what it was. You know, I mean, actually, we, we did very well on the newsstand. Walt kicked our ass on direct sales, but on the newsstand with the regular readers, uh, you know, with the, the more, the, well, let's say less, the less seasoned readers that were, weren't going to comic shops but were on the regular newsstand. Remember the regular newsstand? Yeah. Uh, we actually sold a little better than Walt there because we were doing more traditional comics, you know, that kind of thing. In the same way that Spider-Man sales continued to soar, after Ditko left and Ramita came on, because you know Ramita was more traditional uh, in that you know he was Spider-Man was more of a traditional action star that didn't have the 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 uh, the quirkiness of the of the Ditko approach as much. And uh, you know I, I think that would it happened. I, I never would have wanted Ditko to leave, but it happened at a time that you know it, it actually kind of helped Spider-Man blossom a bit. Just uh, on a side note, though, with with Thorne, you mentioning Walt. There's another artist that I remember from the covers and seeing the name on and so on, and I'm not sure if he came before or after Walt, and that was, I think, Keith Pollard? Yeah. Keith Pollard oh. came before Walt and, uh, yeah, and did wonderful work. I, I've been a huge fan of Keith Pollard's for, for mm -hmm. decades. Uh, at one point, he was doing Thor. Uh, he, he did a run on Spider-Man. He did a run on Fantastic Four with Joe Sinnott and, and did them all incredibly well. There's a uh, Pollard cover of the Amazing Spider-Man where it's Spider-Man running through and then eventually just jumping to the you know forefront of the cover, but you right. see like the little uh, the little shadows of what it was before, like oh how he got to this spot mm -hmm. to this yeah spot. the multi-image stuff that Ditko used to do yeah it's such a great cover and like that's it is. it's it is. one of my all-time favorites and I just thought yep. of a character I think Walt did 
the the Spider-Man. He and I got him to sign this issue of Amazing Spider-Man. He says, "Oh, the only Spider-Man cover I ever did," and I think it was Boomerang. Was on uh, that cover. Speed Demon. Or one of those you know, that would be Flash esque, you know, crossing over. Yeah, there. But, yeah. It yeah. was Speed Demon. It was a, a multi-image thing of him running around Spider-Man, and it was messing okay. up the logo and all that kind yes, of. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. Uh, yep. Ron, one thing I was asking, thinking about before: Do you have a best or not as great that a character that you've worked on, story, drawing, otherwise, illustrating that you, uh, you enjoyed the most, or maybe the least, but you had to get it done, or as a project, or you know what I'm saying? It would be very hard for me to yeah. to come up with an answer to that question over the 30-some years of material that I've done. I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to do that. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed every minute of Thunderstrike. I enjoyed every minute of A-Next. I enjoyed... I, I woke up every morning our seven years on Thor knowing that I, these were going to be the good old days. So There you go. Uh, I, it, it's really hard for me to uh, to choose any kind of a singular issue of, of any of the stuff. I'm sure I could if I put my mind to it, but eh, why bother? That, no, you, you're kind of like going across the board equally, and I get that too, so. Yeah. Great. Thank you again very much for your time. No, it's my pleasure, guys. Uh, enjoy it, and, uh, you know, I'll always be willing to talk comics. So That's good to know, so uh, there might was, be a part two. great pleasure. I appreciate your time. I was going to say, you are more than welcome to return to this show. We absolutely had a blast, and as... As hardcore fans of the art of comics, it's cool to be able to speak to you and be able to get your insight on what makes you love this this medium and why you keep going forward, you know? Well, I, that's very much appreciated. And, uh, you know, uh, hang out every once in a while on Facebook. Let me know how it's going. Yeah. Heck yeah. Now, before we go, once again, tell people at home, Ron, how they can get a copy of the new Sensational Spider-Man that you're on. I assume you go to a comic book store and ask them if they still have any copies left. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As far as keeping an eye on me, I'm on Facebook as just Ron Friends, and and to uh, try to follow Blue Baron and find out how you can get a hold of uh, copies of Blue Baron, I would go to sitcomics.net, S-I-T-C-O-M-I-C-S dot net, and uh, talk to the publisher directly there and uh, see if there's a shop in your area that's currently carrying it and uh, they might be available through Diamond. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Friends, thank you again. Thank you, guys. You take care. Have a good night. So, for the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Ron Friends. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Excelsior!